0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports weekly cyber report sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Joining us today for our first cyber report of 2023 is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral, who is now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also the Executive Director of the Cyber Solarium 2.0, which is the non-governmental organization that has succeeded the, cyber, the highly successful Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Uh, that was a bipartisan congressional uh, commission. Mark, uh, happy new year and great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Bogdan.
0: Uh, Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security, as I mentioned, Uh, not only uh, sponsors our weekly cyber report, but our cyber coverage, overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, GE Aerospace sponsors our air, and HII sponsors our naval coverage, and Leonardo DRS HII, and... GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, are sponsoring our coverage uh, of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium that's going on uh, over the coming three days. Uh, Mark, uh, thanks uh, very much uh, again uh, for joining us. Uh, Extraordinary amount of drama since you and uh, uh, Jim Lewis joined us, uh, Jim Lewis of CSIS. Uh, join us to sort of close out 2022 and and what the major cyber events of the year are, uh, which the good news is we now have a speaker, uh, we now have committee rules, the downside is uh, some of those rules are secret, and it also looks like uh, we may have to live under a year-long continuing resolution, Some in, in part because of some of the commitments that uh, Kevin McCarthy made uh, to become speaker, there's an issue of a $75 billion cut in discretionary spending uh, and measures that make it harder uh, to uh, raise taxes, uh, even though we're likely going to have to do that, right? I mean, cutting alone is not going to get us to the budgetary nirvana some people want. You look at all of these issues, China, Russia, technology, as, as well as cyber. What are the impacts we need to be worrying about? And what are the changes since last we spoke uh, that could uh, impact particularly the cyber side of this equation?
1: you're right. It was a, uh, a very exciting couple of weeks here. I will say from the purely cyber point of view, I don't worry about too much about what happened. First of all, cyber is its, its own issue. It, not completely nonpartisan, but generally nonpartisan where people um, have been, atta- you know, have been agreeing to work across the aisle uh, for the last few years to get things done. You think of Senators Peter and Portman, uh, Senator King, Senator Rounds. Um, Representative Lansman, Representative Gallagher, in each case a Democrat or Republican working together to get literally dozens of uh, cyber provisions done. O- over the last four years, the number of cyber provisions passed each year has increased uh, significantly, you know, from 20 or so a year on average, you know, going back, you know, going back last decade to now, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 a year. And we don't just get them done in the National Defense Authorization Act anymore. They're done in Infrastructure acts and appropriations bills. You know, I just feel that cybersecurity does get tackled, not completely, and not totally. And obviously, if there's complete gridlock, there's complete gridlock, and, and that will hamper cybersecurity efforts on the Hill. But I think, in the absence of complete gridlock, will there will be uh, cybersecurity work that, that needs to get done, and we have uh, a lot of members excited to get tackling it, and, and you see that now. You see. Senator Peters talking about FISMA reform, the Federal Information Security Management Act reform. You see, um, uh, Senator Warner talking about work work he wants to do on information sharing. Uh, you see, um, you know, Senator Rounds and uh, and uh, Senator King have been talking about uh, things they can do to complete uh, elements in the Cybersecurity Information Commission. But also, um, you know, Senator Rounds has uh, has been a long standing proponent of uh, of um, uh, reforms inside the, the Department of Defense, whether it's the strengthening of the principal cyber advisors, the creating of the Assistant Secretary of Defense. You know, he has taken a very incremental approach. Uh, he was key to getting the National Cyber Director done. So you still have these leaders in the same positions they were in. And I would say on the House side, you know, that's probably where there's more tumult. Uh, Mike Gallagher is still there. Um, he's reported to be the chairman of the China Committee, which will have a, a cyber uh, uh, aspect to it. And he'll probably continue within the Armed Services Committee to have a, if he could be chairman of the CID, the, the cyber uh, subcommittee that Jim Lansman used to chair, or at least working closely with the chair of that to get things done. So I still feel there's a lot of work that can and will get done in this in this area. And and final thing I say on the budget is, you know, I, I think there's a there's probably more smoke than fire about the uh, DOD budget. I mean, I'll say historically including last year republicans are the ones who kind of who pick the higher number and end up with the higher number and i mean that's i could just say from my last five years of close exposure to it that's what's happened i don't think that's going to dramatically change but i think there'll be aspects you know there'll be targeting of some issues you, you bet um and uh and i'll say this about taxation you know one party controlled the house the senate And the presidency, and they didn't raise taxes significantly. So, you know, the uh, to now say that when Republicans come in, we'll have trouble raising taxes, you know that that that's a a, you know that's a little unusual. I think both parties have trouble raising taxes um, because they end up targeting some constituents. I I would just say in general, I think there's more smoke than fire around all that. Now, look, if we get into gridlock, you're absolutely right. All those things come back in spades including the uh, CR for, for, for 24. Um, so I, yeah, I think I think you're right to be concerned, but I'd let the situation play out for a couple of weeks.
0: Uh, in, in, indeed, right? I mean, that's one of the things I was going to mention is whether or not we end up in a uh, year-long uh, continuing resolution. Does that have a particular impact, though, uh, uh, just uh, briefly before we move on uh, to talk about Chris Inglis and a number of other issues? Um, you know, the continuing resolution, particularly negatively affects folks who are on the services side of things. And there's a lot about cyber that is services related. Um, Does that make it a particular cyber IT complication from your perspective?
1: That's a great point, uh, Vago. You're absolutely right. And cyber is a growth industry. And you know how it is. In DoD, if you're a startup, the last thing you want, you're a new start. You can't have a continuing resolution; you can't get funded. So, a lot of cyber programs are new starts because we weren't doing them before. Right. And there's a lot of growth in cyber, whether it's in uh, cyber command, uh, other aspects of DoD cyber, uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, nearly every federal agency that supports a critical infrastructure needs to grow its support structure. So, these are all growth. And you want to here's what doesn't get funded. You know, when you're in a CR, growth. And new starts, right? And so, um, I think that's a great that's a great insight you have that that it may not affect the legislation as much as it affects the appropriations. And so, we do have to be concerned about that. And and uh, and I think your your points well taken there. And we should watch that closely.
0: Is there anything that can be done if we end up in that circumstance in order to be able to shield that which we think is important, or do we end up getting into the same BS? Uh, situation a, that we found ourselves in so so many times.
1: As you know from your extensive uh, DoD experience, there are there is a system for for uh, you know basically wavering through certain startup programs during the CR. It generates inside a department, say in this case I was mentioning Department of Defense, but it could be in Department Homeland Security. Goes to OMB, and then the Congress agrees to put it in the in the um, continuing resolution. Now, when you do that. You recognize some other thing is going to at least initially in the continuing resolution going to get salami sliced to pay for that startup. So there are workarounds, but they're limited. When I, you know these are in the, you know, five to ten programs kind of listing. Sometimes ten to fifteen programs if it would be an extended uh, CR. So the you know the, the shorter answer is there's workarounds. The longer answer is there's still paying.
0: And, and pain is what Washington ultimately is all about, unfortunately. Um, I want uh, uh, to get uh, to Chris uh, Inglis and the National Cyber Strategy, but first want to ask you about uh, comments made by General Paul Nakasone, uh, Director of the National Security Agency and the Commander of U.S. Cyber uh, Command, who um, has said that he sees parallels between the Special Operations Command and Cyber Command uh, and how to better use authorities? You know there is an and and how do DOD can step up its its game? To some, um, th- that's an incongruous statement to make because you know one are highly trained uh, physical operators who are putting themselves in harm's way um, as as uh, you know in in covert missions and that they have very little in common with uh, uh, the cyber uh, community, whereas others would say actually. The, the two have many many more similarities than dissimilarities, and one of the things General Nakasoni is talking about is, for example, there's an Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and in Low Intensity Conflict. We don't have an ASD uh, for cyber, for example. We've tended to look at this as a you know an IT uh, uh, ish, issue more more than specifically uh, a cyber issue. W- what does he mean, and and why is it important, and what are the changes that actually need to make? to sort of uh, take that sort of one-throat-to-choke approach uh, that was a hallmark of the Solarium uh, Commission that was applied, uh, created the role of the National Cyber Director, we'll talk about that in a minute, but what are the things that have to happen within the DOD architecture to give greater focus on the cyber issue and then to build out those forces?
1: So um look I think you have to look at it, uh, it look, there's been recent action on this so I want to put this in some context uh, beyond what General Knox was saying although I fully support his uh, his assessment. Um, so the first thing is that we currently have the status quo that's one of the options and it's an option where the services provide train maintain equip, as they generally as they see fit, to Cyber Command who then uh, aggregates the forces and and generates combat capacity, right? Particularly in the National Mission Force. Um, That has left us with very, um, each service has approached us slightly differently. You know, the Army and the Air Force have created cyber specific officer uh, communities. The Navy has decided to to have the cryptological community be slightly bipolar and do both cryptology and uh, and, uh, offensive cyber. Or um, cyber operations, um, the um, so each have funded it differently to get to their you know their required personnel they're supposed to provide, which means a different level of training and expertise and maturity across the the force, and uh, and and you also have some duplication in different training facilities at, at Fort uh, Gordon, I think now to be Fort Eisenhower, um, Fort uh, you know you Corey Station and out in San Antonio, so you probably have some duplication of services. So I think we have. Um, I think we could fairly be described as a uh, inefficient, insufficient, inefficient, and insufficient uh, service-driven effort. And General McSendney's ability to really strong arm the services into providing more as he needs to grow the National Mission Force is very limited. He can only do it through his own good graces and reputation, not through any specific tools. That's one end of the spectrum that we're at now, probably the most disaggregated end. at the other end of the spectrum would be if you created a cyber force. And I think had you you know, had an honest discussion of cyber force versus space force, probably a cyber force was the more necessary thing uh, four years ago. But that isn't what happened. The vice president at the time was very excited about a space force, and that made everyone else you know, fascinated and aggressively seeking it out. And there was House support for, uh, congressional support for it, so, so we got to that. But if you had a cyber force, you'd have a fully integrated, efficient, sufficient thing, being driven by a service chief highly aligned with cyber command. Now, you're not going to get, we just, it took us 70 years between the creation of the Air Force and the Space Force. I don't think you're going to create your next military service like two years later, three years later. So we'll probably have another half a decade before we finally come to our wit, you know, our senses and, and create a cyber force. So with a status quo that's not efficient or sufficient, a, a uh, Nirvana that's not achievable, you got to find some middle ground. And that middle ground is the SOCOM model. And so, what you saw Congress do, you know, Senator um, uh, Round's team is the one that, that I think initiated it, but they got support from, you know, uh, Senator Reed, uh, Senator Manchin, and then in the House from, uh, from Representative Langevin and, and, uh, and the Republicans, they were able to create an Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber. That's the first step. That gives you a hook for someone to be, you know, that can be the leader inside OSD. Now, that Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber was not written like the Assistant Secretary of Defense for SOLEX Special Operations and in Low Intensity Conflict. That's the person that really empowers SOCOM uh, to, to be a train, maintain, equip lead by having an, an OSD element that, is, uh, that has a train, maintain, equip responsibility you know, for oversight of the services that really allows SOCOM to say, hey, I needed, you know, uh, three of A and two of B, but uh, but the Army didn't provide it. The Air Force did and the Navy was nowhere to be found. You know what I mean? That, you know, you, you have that person to, to be that leader. I would hope over time the Congress iteratively and, and with DOD's encouragement and support creates, you know, maneuvers the ASD for cyber into an ASD for SOLIC-like responsibility. And then I would also further continue to empower Cyber Command. If you look in the last three NDAAs, they have incrementally increased the acquisition authority of Cyber Command. It doesn't approach SOCOMs yet, but it's getting there, right? It's not yet at SOCOMs level, but it's, I guess, approaching it is the right way to look at it. So I think that's what General Nakasone is referring to, the idea that you need a setup like SOCOM and the Assisted Defense for SOLIC have and special operations in cyber, that will be a good midpoint where we can continue to develop our warfighting capacity and capability, while we kind of get our hands around the idea of do we want to have a, a cyber force, and whether you eventually have a cyber force or not, I would I would maneuver rapidly to the special operations model in cyber. It gives you better control of the services, better ability for rapid force generation, better ability for you know rapid changes in the training environment if necessary. Because you, you only have to maneuver one training environment, not three or four, you know, if you had it in the Marine Corps. So, I mean, you know, there's just to me the kind of flexibility and agility that we need in our cyber forces is going to come from that marriage of a, of a strong ASD for cyber with an empowered uh, cyber commander.
0: Do you do you have a, a, a right? I mean, and nothing in the department happens unless the senior leadership thinks it's a good idea and wants to implement it. Um, are there is there enough support for this to be implemented and implemented quickly to get us to where we need to be in a relevant timescale?
1: So, you know, when the assistant secretary of defense was in the Senate version of NDAA, the 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 uh, the departments, uh, the, the administration's SAP or, you know, their statement was that they didn't like it because they had some other ASDs, and Secretary of defense that they wanted to create. I don't think they actually had an opinion on the position. And we currently had cyber was, I think John Plum, who's a, you know, a dedicated professional, is the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space, uh, nu- nuclear weapons, that, which were overhauling all of them, uh, missile defense, weapons of mass destruction, and, and cyber. So there's no way it was getting the attention. So I don't think they're opposed to the part of creating a, a, a focused leadership position on cyber. As you get to empower it, I think that if I was inside the department itself, OSD, I'd be thrilled to create you know, the ASD for cyber in a more meaningful way. If I was in a service, services tend to not appreciate people being you know, assigned oversight of them or having control over their decision making. Just historically speaking, right. uh, services are not fans of that. So I think the services will oppose it. But look, you don't get to, to not perform and then oppose increased oversight. That's just not, is not appropriate. And so I think the services need this help.
0: That's the senior uh, uh, Senate staffer in you uh, talking, Mark. Um, <laughs> Uh, I I want to shift uh, to uh, uh, the National Cyber Strategy, something we discussed on the last program of the year and did in 2022 uh, often. uh, Chris Inglis uh, in uh, the National Cyber Director that was created uh, by uh, the Solarium Commission. uh, And I should point out, Chris was one of the commissioners uh, on the the commission uh, in late December said that he was uh, going to step down uh, over the coming months. Uh, many members, Mike Gallagher being one of them, Jim Langevin being another, uh, have called on to stay on until the new cyber strategy, uh, is, uh, disclosed, uh, by the, uh, administration. Uh, two, uh, questions starting first, where are we on the national cyber strategy and do we have any greater visibility into it now than we did, uh, in our last program in mid December?
1: So it still hasn't been released. So the insight we have are from comments that, uh, um, Uh, Chris Inglis has made and uh, some leaks. Um, And I think in general, uh, my understanding is there was a deputies meeting yesterday, the second deputies. If that went well, then you usually get a paper principles um, on this kind of issue. And then you could be, you know, you could have a signed document in, you know, two to three to four weeks. You know, it's really a bureaucratic battle at this point, not a content battle. So, um, and, and it's a light bureaucratic, as bureaucratic battles go, it's reasonable. So two, three, four weeks, I think you get a signed document um, uh, as long as nobody spoilers it during the uh, paper uh, principles. So uh, I think we're getting very close. Uh, I think Chris has made it clear that um, and he made it clear means in our commission, you know, 23 years of a voluntary approach uh, to establishing effective cybersecurity in our national critical infrastructures has not um, produced the kind of results we want that anyone wants and that everyone needs to be raising their investment and their uh, concentration on cybersecurity in our critical infrastructures. And whether you achieve that through um, joint industry government collaboration, or you achieve it through government regulation, or you achieve it through government incentivization. And there's arguments for each of those, depending on the industry you're in. uh, You know, we need to do one of those three things. I'll give you a good example. the water industry, you can say, here's a new regulation, but if you don't incentivize it, it's not going to happen. It's not like the water industry or a group of daddy warbucks sitting in a corner. They're counties and towns and localities that don't have two wood nickels to rub together for cybersecurity, which is a new problem for them, right? Um, and most of us you know, vote pretty aggressively to not raise taxes, rates, or bonds you know, for your water system. So, you know, to, in order to get it done, you're really going to need the federal government to step in with incentivization programs that, that help and that, that is uh, supported by a joint industry government effort to establish a standard. says, here's the standard. When you're missing something, identify it and come and try to get some, some grant or low interest loan money to fix it, depending on, your, on the size of your organization and such and the amount of money you need. In other words, I'm telling you, you know, it's easy to default to, Chris said that we need more regulation. It's a much more complex answer than that he's giving, which is we need a mix of these different methods for raising the cybersecurity standards and our critical infrastructures. And yes, regulation may be one of them, but it's part of a toolkit that each each, uh, each industry and each federal agency that's a sector risk management agency or a regulator uh, will use uh, getting there. I think that's one of the strongest points of the uh, strategy. There's other ones that get at our role internationally, Uh, I've heard a discussion of, you know, what what position we play in, you know, in helping get, you know, raise the, the security of the overall ecosystem through standards and certifications and fixing the cyber insurance market. I think there's a lot in there on that. I think the strongest specificity is going to be associated with raising the standards through incentivization, regulation, or combined work.
0: Chris uh, has, has left an extraordinary uh, legacy, uh, both in terms of high strategy and, and, as you said, really the blocking and, and tackling, right? I mean, just improving uh, the government's overall uh, cyber uh, security uh, are things uh, that he's been focused on. What is what is his legacy and what does his successor need to prioritize?
1: I think I, I would say, I would also step back and say Chris Inglis is national cyber director and Neuberger is the deputy national security, uh, security advisor. And, Jen Easterly is a director of CISA, a Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. The three of them have done a good job. You know, they stepped into a very unusual situation. You know, between January and June of 2021, where we had cyber, you know, we had solar winds, we had, um, you know, probably a not well. You know, we just had a, a, yet another election. You know, cyber-enabled operation against our election um, uh, uh, infrastructure and. Um, a, a real need you know and a bunch of congressional ref- uh, legislation just passed and i think the three of them together have done a, a good job it hasn't always been smooth but i think it's always consistently moved the ball moved the but raised the bar of cybersecurity on our national critical structure not near enough we have more to do i, I want to correct one thing you said mike gallagher and jim langevin have been, have been pushing to stay i would say they've been pushing to stay through the end of 2023 we wish chris Inglis would do yet another year and i think senator king you can throw his name in there. He's been pushing too. We just think that it was a phenomenal job he did setting up, you know, he did a startup inside the federal government, inside the White House. I did a, when I ran a commission, I did a small startup inside the federal government. And my tagline used to be, those are two words that should never be used, phrases that should be never used together, startup and federal government. I can only say the worser more difficult challenge is startup federal government inside the White House. And Chris has done it. He's taken that from Two people in his, you know, his first month was just him and uh, and his chief of staff, John Costello, and it's now oh, you know, at a hundred people, you know, he has grown that agency, you know, that that, that directorship to where it needs to be. Um, now I wish he'd do another year, but you know, you know the, 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 that that's his decision to make, and I I certainly don't think he'll leave till after the National Cyber Strategy is signed. And there's some sort of like understanding of what the implementation plan is, but that could be in the next couple, easily in the next two months, um, and so we'll see what happens on his leave. Obviously, he has a principal director who'll step in initially. It's a Senate confirmed job, so you don't click your fingers on this. It takes a you know weeks to months to get something done. I, I will state uh, acknowledge that that in the cyber realm, the Senate is really fast on confirmations. They did Chris in in uh, weeks, and they they took care of his uh, hearing committee clearance and and Senate appro- you know, approval in a matter of weeks. They did the same for Nate Fick is the uh, cyber ambassador. So Democrats and Republicans come together to get cyber stuff done. Um, and so I hope that when they've determined who his relief should be, whether it should be his current principal deputy, Campbell Walden, or one of the other senior leaders in the uh, in the administration like um, Rob Silvers at Department of Homeland Security or Kirsten Todd at, uh, cyber, uh, at CISA, um, or, or someone else that they uh, that it, it's handled rapidly uh, by the administration by the uh, administration to submit the nomination and by the Senate to take action on it. Um,
0: it's a critical job and it's important to have somebody uh, you know. Obviously, uh, it goes without saying, knowledgeable, but also particularly uh, tough um, uh, given uh, the the need. Uh, to To drive uh, as hard and as quickly as we can on, on this issue. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, and, and Chris uh, and the entire team, uh, as you said, have done a terrific job. I just want to take a couple of minutes, uh, Mark, and sort of get your sense on what you think uh, the big uh, stories uh, and the big issues of, uh, of the year are going to be, or even the small issues that people may, may miss that are actually going to be uh, tectonic in their uh, importance, right? I mean, obviously, you know, ransomware was a big issue. Uh, Chinese... Uh, you know, improvements in Chinese capability and indeed intrusions were uh, another uh, storyline. There was the quote "cyber dog that didn't bark" in, in terms of Russian attacks on the United States, but it's it's clear the United States and its allies are also doing a good job blunting uh, by, um, uh, the Russians by by deterring forward. What do you think some of the issues or the the big issues of 2023 are going to be that folks have to keep on their radar screens and 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 devote mental energy to?
1: Well, listen, I think the, the big issues are going to be um, the, the dog that, the the, the uns, you know, the, the one you can't predict is the dog that didn't bark. And by that, you know, you and I both mean um, the Russian, the potential for a Russian cyber attack, a major one in Western Europe or the United States on, our, on uh, so much critical infrastructure. Um, I still worry about this. You know, the, the the Ukrainians have an IT hacker army out there, not trained by us, not uh, Not even basic, you know, framing of uh, of risk management, escalation management. They're out there. If they get lucky and do something really significant to hamper um, Russian critical infrastructure, um, who's Putin going to hold accountable? You know, a group of hackers in Ukraine, or GCHQ in in the United Kingdom, or NSA here in the United States. I think it's number two or number three. So there's still a chance that we get that, or you know, if the, the oil and gas sanctions from Europe finally bite, you know they haven't bit yet, but when they bite and and begin to change his export, you know his um his ability to generate uh, um, exports, you know, and, and generate cash back into his economy, you know, that's regime credibility for Putin. That could also lead us. So I still say that's an issue out there, and Sciz's you know kind of constant vigilance, you know, with shields up and other efforts, while well, you know not, they don't solve the problem, they maintain a focus and alertment to it. Um, I think that's important. So first, I I do want to state that 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 2022 problem is still a 2023 problem. I think the next one's going to be looking at, you know, uh, Chinese IT penetration of of our systems and our supply chains. I think Mike Gallagher's China committee is going to take a hard look at this. I think, you know, there's probably... You know, I, we always joke, you and I do that. There's 50, sub, you know, committees or subcommittees, and plus, you know, in Congress, that think they have cybersecurity as a responsibility. There's going to be 60 committees that think they have a a, um, a, uh, um, a, 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 a responsibility to look at the supply chain issues from China. So I think that you're going to see a lot of that. Uh, you know, you saw there was a good bill passed uh, in the last NDAA adding companies to the 889, uh, the, the, you know, companies that the you know, businesses can, cannot, U.S. businesses cannot do business with in China, if they're going to have U.S. contracts. So I think you're going to see more of that and uh, more delisting or listing, depending how you look at it, of Chinese companies that you can't do business with, or they can't do business in the United States, or they can't be in our supply chain. So you're going to see more of that kind of with China. And then, uh, then finally, I, I do think, you know, we're going to have to have a, a, a uh, a, uh, a come to an understanding on ransomware we we still only get about 75 to 80 percent of ransomware uh, uh, incidents reported so when we say there's a massive ransomware problem we say there's a massive ransomware problem in the 20 to 25 percent we know about you know it's four times worse or five times worse than we're hearing and that's extremely to me nerve-wracking so I think you're going to see a a better articulation of the real damage ransomware is doing, and which could have the silver lining of, of changing how cyber insurance companies look at, about how insurance companies look at cybersecurity and how to write premiums and such, and how companies address their pre-existing flaws. So I know those are three kind of boring issues, but you know, Russia, the dog that didn't work, China, really a deep look into their role in our IT, and uh, ITC supply chains. And then ran- ransomware becoming more clear as a as a significant detriment to economic uh, you know productivity.
0: Mark, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Uh, look forward to having you back many more times uh, over the course of the year. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it, and happy new year to you and yours.
1: Thank you, Vago, and happy new year to you as well.